All right, so we are moving forward in the biography series. So what I want you to do is open to Luke chapter 4. We're, we're stepping out now into the ministry, and I don't know how many messages I'm going to do here. i got to kind of determine what things we're going to cover. So uh, what, I, what I would ask of you guys is, as I try to figure this out, um, if there are things that you all very much want to be brought to the forefront of his ministry, um, something about his ministry that you would like to hear spoken about, uh, come tell me, because as I try to weed through, I mean, there's just, it's a, it's a plethora of material, obviously, in, in the Gospels, and so if there are things that you guys want to hear about in terms of his ministry, tell me, so that I, I may be able to focus upon that, but today we're going to start with his preaching, so the ministry of Jesus his preaching. Now, uh, Michael read a good portion of this passage in Luke chapter 4, but I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to kind of broaden it out a little bit into some other sections here. So let me uh, start at verse 14. And while we read some of this, of course, and I'll go a little bit further on, we're going to read 14 all the way through verse 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as was His custom, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. I almost did the King James, heal thyself. Uh, what, what we have heard... You did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
but passing through their midst, he went away. This passage is a good summary of not only the ministry of the Lord Jesus, but the preaching ministry of the Lord Jesus. Because uh, as you can see at the start, he, he opens the scroll, he says some words here, and then in verse 14, uh, or actually, sorry, before he even gets to any of that, in verse 14, Jesus is coming in the power of the Spirit. That's the, that's the fundamental reality of the Lord Jesus Christ in His preaching. We'll look at that. But then afterward, He comes, of course, as a preacher of good news. You see that in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news. Now, if you don't know, the word gospel is simply that. It's, it's the word, it's good news. That's what, it, that's what it means. So He comes in the power of the Spirit. He comes as a preacher of the gospel, a preacher of good news. The people are in awe of His preaching. You see that in verse 22. All spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. And then, of course, they reject His words and they seek to kill Him in the following verses there. So this is a good summary for us of the preaching and the ministry of Jesus. When we think of, of the Lord and we think of His ministry, we have got to think predominantly of one who was a preacher. Undoubtedly, brethren, He did many things, and we're going to look at a lot of those things as we look at His ministry, but we have got to come to recognize Him as one who was sent from God to be a preacher. He was sent from God to proclaim good news. He was sent from God to proclaim liberty. Those kinds of things listed there in that passage in Isaiah. Even he told his disciples himself in Mark chapter 1, they come to him and he says, Let us go into the other towns that I may preach there also, for this is the purpose for which I came out. The Lord Jesus came to preach. That is the purpose for which he came. He came to be a preacher, and brethren, he preached. That's what he did. It is, it is extraordinarily interesting to me that Luke and Matthew and Mark paint this picture of Jesus right out of the gate of one who is at, at the work of preaching. Uh, Luke begins, you know, this story here of him preaching in Nazareth in the, in the synagogue there. And uh, Matthew and, and Mark begin a little bit different. Um, I want to show you these. So, just so you can see what, what I'm saying here. If you turn back, oh, you may not have to turn, but at the beginning of chapter 4, you see the, the temptation of Jesus in Luke there. Now, when the temptation ends in Luke, the first thing that Luke does is put him preaching, okay? Uh, the temptation ends in chapter 4, verse 13, and then in verse 14, he is coming in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and he's there in Nazareth, and he's preaching. Now go to Matthew for a second, because I want you to see the passage here. The same thing. Go right there after the temptation. So you have the temptation in chapter 4, and that ends at verse 11. Okay. Now look at me at chapter 4, verse 12 in Matthew. This is, this is directly after baptism temptation. Here's where Matthew puts him. When he heard that John, this is Jesus, right? When he heard, when Jesus heard that John had been, put, had been arrested, 
He withdrew into Galilee, and, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun. So you, you have even, even Matthew's kind of skipping over some Nazareth stuff and talking about Capernaum. Okay, now look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Matthew does the same thing. He does baptism, temptation, Jesus is preaching. He's immediately at the work of preaching. Now go to Mark. I want you to see how he does this. Again, in Mark 1, you have the temptation, verses 12 and 13. After the temptation ends, what does Mark have him doing? Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, that's preaching, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, so Luke, Matthew, Mark, you have baptism, temptation, and they immediately want you to see Jesus at his work of preaching. It's very interesting that they do this. The reason this is interesting is because this is most certainly not the first thing that Jesus was doing after his temptation. You say, well, what in the world? How are you getting that? Well, John, John's gospel is helpful because John doesn't really follow the sort of lines that Matthew and Mark and Luke follow. He kind of has his own trajectory in terms of what he's putting in the gospel and the timeline itself. We're going to get to John, but I want you to notice at least one thing. There's two reasons here for why we know that the picture that both Luke and Matthew and Mark paint of Jesus immediately at preaching after the baptism and temptation is not actually the first thing he does. Now, you can notice this right away if you're, if you're, if you're carefully reading the story in Luke. Look at Luke chapter 4 again. When he's there in Nazareth, he opens the scrolls, he begins to preach, right? And then you have in, in verse 23, listen to what these people who are in Nazareth, what they say to Jesus. They say, or well, Jesus actually says what, what they're thinking, basically. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now look what he says. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, if you're careful to recognize clearly what, is, what has taken place is some ministry in Capernaum before this, right? Because these, basically what he's saying is these people are saying to him, hey, we know that you did some ministry over here in Capernaum. Why don't you do here in Nazareth what you did over there? So even, even in just Luke's account, we know that this is not the first thing that had already happened because these people know that other stuff had already happened in the ministry of Jesus. So Luke puts him at preaching in Nazareth and he already skips over at least something that was happening in Capernaum. Now, go to John because I want you to see this a little bit more clearly. If you remember, both in Matthew and Mark, they sort of put a time stamp on when Jesus' ministry began. They say he, be he went up to Galilee to preach, but he did it after a certain event. Did you guys catch what both Matthew and Mark said? You mouthed it. <laughs> 
John the Baptist was put in prison, okay? This is the, this is the time marker for when both Matthew and Mark are saying Jesus went up to Galilee and began to preach, okay? It has to do with John being put in prison. They both make note of it. Um, and this is actually really good because we know that John was not put in prison for a little bit into Jesus' ministry, okay? I want you to see some of this. Like I said, John's gospel is kind of helpful in terms of us just seeing the, the lay of the land. John does not begin in any of the same places that the others begin, and he actually kind of skips over a lot of important stuff right in the beginning. John does not even discuss the baptism. He doesn't discuss it taking place. John does not talk about the temptations. In fact, John's gospel begins with both of those things having already taken place. They're in the past, okay? John's gospel basically begins with a testimony of what John the Baptist had already seen in the baptism of Jesus. Look at this, John 1, verses, verse, starting verse 31, okay? Here's, here's John's testimony. We've looked at this already in the baptism, but I want you to see this, all right? He, John says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven. Okay, this has already happened, right? He is, John is now testifying what he had seen happen previously. The baptism, the temptations, that had already taken place. And now John is saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. It remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so John, John's gospel begins, baptism, temptation already in the past. We have a testimony of John the Baptist in front of these Pharisees and others. And then we get a number of events that take place. Now, these might shock you when we begin to see them, but a number of things that take place before that account of Matthew and Mark even link up with John the Baptist in prison and Jesus going to preach in Galilee. So I want you to see some of these, okay? You're going to have to track here with me. Now, look with me. Okay, you have a section in John 1, 35 through 42. That section there, okay? There you get Jesus. He has returned now, John doesn't say this, but if we're going to try to match up chronologies here, this is the best thing that we can come up with. What has taken place is Jesus has returned from his period of temptation, and he's back now in Judea, where John was and his disciples were and those kinds of things. Okay. Now, in verse 35 through 42, you have an account where Jesus meets Andrew. This is, this is Peter's brother. And Andrew is a disciple of John at the time. Okay, And John actually puts Andrew sort of on to Jesus and, and, and gets him to go follow the Lord. Then Andrew goes and gets Peter and introduces Peter to Jesus. That's what you get in 35 through 42. Then in 43 through 51, Jesus decides to go up to Galilee. Now, this is not the same trip that's in Matthew and Mark. And the reason is because John is not yet in prison. You'll see that in a minute. But this is a different trip. This is a trip that Jesus is taking up to Galilee, totally separate from that situation. Okay? So Jesus decides he's going to go up to Galilee, 43 through 51. He meets Philip and Nathaniel on this trip. And uh, then, following that, you get the, the account of the wedding at Cana, of course, chapter 2. 
Then in 2, 13 through 23, Jesus comes back down to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. This is the first time that he cleanses the temple of all these, all these people in there, the, the money changers and whatnot. Then in chapter 3, you have the encounter with Nicodemus, him, him sitting with Nicodemus and talking about you must be born again and those kinds of things. Okay, that's chapter 3, uh, 1 through 21. Now, in 3.22 through 36, gives us some really good insight for us to be able to see that all of that had taken place before Jesus goes up to Galilee to begin to preach. Okay, it says, look at uh, verse 22. After this, so that's after the, that's after, just, just put in, in the after this, okay, Jesus meets already multiple of his disciples. They take a trip up to Galilee. They go to a wedding in Cana. They come back down for Passover. He cleanses the temple. He preaches to Nicodemus. And now all of this has taken place. Now here, after this, verse 22, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing Anon near Salem because there was plentiful water there. And people were coming and being baptized. Now, you already can notice, he doesn't need to say it yet, that John is clearly not in prison because John is with them. You see that, right? John, it says that John was also baptizing. Obviously, he's not in prison yet. But in case we didn't catch it, verse 24, look at it. For John had not yet been put in prison. Okay? So, here's my point, brethren. All of this stuff had taken place before Jesus had ever gone up to Galilee to begin His preaching ministry there. Now what follows in John's Gospel is probably what happens after John is, is thrown in prison. Okay, um, you, get, you get John probably thrown in prison and then the Pharisees want to come after Jesus because He seems to be making more disciples than John was making. You see that in uh, ch uh, chapter 4. Look with me at chapter 4 for a second. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again. See, again, right? This is not the first time he's gone up here. He departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, you know what follows, right? He meets the woman in Samaria at the well, and they go up and ends up in Galilee, right? So this is where we most likely link up with Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark basically say, Jesus heard that John was in prison, and he departed for Galilee and began to preach. And here you have a situation where it doesn't say that John had been put in prison, but we know just before this that John had been out of prison, and we know that Jesus departed for Galilee because John was put in prison. And this seems to fit the situation, right? John's in prison, the Pharisees got him in there now, now they're over here chasing after Jesus because he's making more disciples, and so Jesus withdraws to Galilee, passes through Samaria to go there. Now, all of that chronological stuff, I like that stuff, Maybe you don't like that stuff. But that stuff is really important when you're trying to understand some things in the Bible. And it's because this. 
Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke skip over a lot of stuff that took place in the life of Jesus, and they put him immediately at the work of preaching. Brethren, I hope you're seeing here, that is not the first thing that he was doing. Okay, when Jesus came back from his temptation, he didn't jump up to Galilee and begin to preach. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke want you to see him in that way. They want you to see him having been baptized, filled with the Spirit, triumphant over temptation, and then he's out there proclaiming the gospel. They want you to see him in that light. They're making a theological point here. They're trying to get us to see. Brethren, it's not as though they had no idea. Okay, when, when we think of the gospel writers, we have to realize they knew what took place and when it took place. They knew the order of events and those kinds of things. They were there. They were part of His ministry. They weren't confused here. They knew that them putting Jesus in Galilee preaching, that came later. But they want to make a point. As you've heard it said before, man, he said it the other day. I don't even know who he was quoting, but... I loved it. God had a one son and he was a preacher. I love that quote. And you know what, brethren? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they want us to see that God had one son and he was busy about preaching. That's what he's doing right away. They place him upon that work immediately upon his return. So when I think of the preaching ministry of Jesus, there's a lot of things that we can think about and, and, and try to look at. Um, but there are two that sort of stick to the forefront of my mind. They're honestly really simplistic, but they are the ones that for me stand out the most. Uh, the first one is his giftedness and empowerment of the Spirit to preach. This is something that Jesus Christ is preeminent in above all others. The second thing is the content of his preaching. Now that will require a bit of explanation, and I'll do that once we get to that, once we get to that point. But I want to look at both of these. His giftedness and empowerment of the Spirit to be a preacher, called by God to preach, and the content of his preaching. So this first one, giftedness and empowerment. Like I said, this, the Scriptures are testifying to us over and over again that in this realm, Jesus Christ is preeminent, brethren. Above all others, Jesus Christ was gifted and empowered by the Spirit to preach more than any other person on planet Earth. In John chapter 3, we looked at it uh, briefly there, but in John chapter 3, there's this discussion that breaks out, basically from uh, 25 on, just before chapter 4 begins. This discussion breaks out between John the Baptist and uh, some of these others, and they seem to realize the fact that Jesus is making more disciples than John the Baptist is. And uh, they're concerned about this, so they come to John and they ask him about it. And of course, John, knowing that Jesus, uh, his ministry is going to have to increase, and John's is going to have to decrease, he begins making comparisons between the two, right? He says, the one who's from heaven, so-and-so, the one who's from earth, such-and-such. -and, such. and he's making these comparisons between Jesus, who is the one from heaven, and the one who is uh, the, f the fullness of ministry, and John's, who's just a type, who is just foreshadowing Jesus, all right? So he's making these comparisons. And then he gets to this statement, John 3, 34. He gets to this statement right here, which can be a bit confusing, 
um, depending on what translation that, that you're using, because of the way the pronouns are understood. Now, don't think about that in the way our world thinks of pronouns. But uh, in, in the scripture, sometimes when it says he or she or whatever, it's hard to determine exactly what the reference is. Because uh, there's maybe a couple of things up above that that could be the he or the she that it's in reference to. So you're going to have to use some kind of context to determine it. Now, I'm going to make a case for this passage, but I want to just read it as it is, okay? John 3, 34. Here's what John the Baptist says. And he's speaking of Jesus here. For he whom God has sent, that's, that's Christ. Again, he's making these comparisons. Now, I don't have time to go through all of them, but... This is one of those comparisons. Now he's speaking of Christ. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, most translations will probably read that way. Like I said, it's difficult to determine what is being said there. Because you've got to determine what the reference is. What are these pronouns being referenced to? When it says, He gives the Spirit without measure, we have to determine who is giving the Spirit and who is receiving the Spirit. Okay? So let me be brief here and simply say this. The context is really clear, brethren. The context is about what the Father is giving to the Son. Look with me at what exactly follows his statement there in 34. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The context itself is about what the Father is giving to the Son. Okay? Now, the King James translators, I think, really had a good, a good idea of what this verse was saying. Now, they had to add, and this happens a lot. I mean, this happens in every Bible. Uh, but when you do translation, if you're going to take something from one language and translate it into another language, oftentimes you will have to add some words in or maybe even take some words out because it's not, things don't just cut across woodenly. I mean, they could, but they are not going to sound that great. So what you have to do sometimes is add some words in so that it makes sense, so that the context makes sense. Now, the King James translators had to do this when they translated this verse, but I think they make it much more clear Okay, and I think they grasped what is attempting to be said by John. Let me read to you what, how, it's, how it's read in the King James. For he whom God hath sent, again, speaking of Jesus Christ, right? He whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God, you see here? So they are, they are associating this he pronoun with God. For God, now this is kind of confusing how they phrase this. God giveth not the Spirit by measure. Okay, what that means is God does not uh, uh, give the Spirit in measure. Okay, He gives it, he gives it measureless. That's what they're saying there. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto Him. Now, the reference there is Jesus Christ. The, I think the King James translator, translators are, are getting to the idea that what John is attempting to say is that in God, giving all things into the hands of Jesus Christ, what the Father is giving to the Son, in addition, what God is giving to the Son is a fullness of the Spirit, a completeness of the Spirit, that God is giving the Spirit without measure 
to Jesus Christ. So if we read it in our, in our English translation, it might say something like this if we're, if we're mending the two together. For he whom God has sent, Jesus Christ, he utters the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without measure to him. Do you see this? Is that a bit more clear in terms of what is, what is being said there? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. It is Jesus Christ, brethren, that is the one who has the Spirit without measure. He's the one who's that. The reason why, not only in context to understand the verse in that light, but another reason why is because that is the only true way in which the verse even makes sense. Christians don't have the Spirit without measure. Jesus Christ has the Spirit without measure. We are called to be filled with the Spirit, to, const to, con to constantly be, be filled with the Spirit. We are those who constantly deplete the Spirit in our lives through sin and lack of communion with God. This is not how Jesus Christ is. He's utterly in a different category than this. The Father did not only grant the Spirit without measure to the Son, but He is also the only man to have never sinned and therefore grieved the Spirit on His own and sent the Spirit away. He's the only man who had never grown cold towards the Spirit or in communion with His Father. He's the only one whose life was one of always moving in deeper and deeper communion and fellowship with the Father. Brethren, Jesus Christ is the only man who has had the Spirit without measure. And it is evidenced in His preaching ministry. If you just recall, just recall a handful of things that are spoken about Jesus in His ministry. Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you can go to these if you want. Matthew 7, 28. He comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And these people say something about Him. Seven twenty-eight. it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They're astonished at His teaching, brethren, because He comes with authority and He comes with power in the Holy Spirit. Jesus began. He enters in and He began to preach in a way that these people had never heard preaching before. They had, they had heard the scribes and all these people quote the rabbis. They had heard them talk about different things in the Scriptures. But brethren, they had never heard a fresh word from God in the power of the Holy Spirit. They had never heard that kind of thing. Let me put this in the modern vernacular for you. They had heard the modern reformed intellectual preachers. They heard the short, pithy sayings from the, from the intelligent people. They heard the constant refrain of quotations from commentaries and material that wasn't their own. They heard the continuous droning of 
This is our 89th sermon in the book of Isaiah as we go word by word and verse by verse. They heard that kind of thing, brethren, but they did not hear the power of the preaching of God like they did when Jesus showed up on the scene. The scribes had been continuing to open the books and speak. But the people just stopped listening. They didn't hear God anymore. There was no power in it. And Jesus shows up on the scene and begins to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit. And these people are shocked. They're shocked at what they hear. Because there's power there. And the same thing happens in Mark chapter 1. Look at this. Mark 1. In Mark 1, 21 through 28, I'm not going to read the whole account, but in, in 21 through 28, Jesus comes in and begins to preach in this synagogue in Capernaum. And it says that these people, they had the same kind of thing. Verse 22, they were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So once again, you have the same issue there, right? These scribes, they had been opening the books, they had been preaching, but they had not had the power of God like Jesus did when He comes in this place. And then what you find next is a clear indication that Jesus' ministry came in the power of God and none of these others did. It talks about this man that was in this synagogue who had an unclean spirit. And he began to cry out when Jesus began to preach. This, this demonic spirit began to say, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Here's this demon-oppressed man, and he can calmly and coolly sit in this synagogue when the scribes are preaching and opening the Scriptures. But when Jesus shows up and He begins to preach, they can't bear it anymore, brethren. The power of God is upon the man, and the demons begin to shout at it. Again, in modern-day vernacular, brethren, if the unconverted people can sit in the pews for year after year after year, there's no power of God upon the preaching. That is just the reality of the situation. When the demons are not moved to a shout at the proclamation of God's truth, the Spirit of God is not in it. And this is what takes place here. Brethren, this demon is in the synagogue. He's got no problem there until Jesus begins to preach. There is something different about this man when he shows up and he begins to proclaim truth. <laughs> Brethren, Paul was right when he says the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And that was not more true of any other person than Jesus Christ. It existed in power, brethren, in power. But not only did Jesus preach with authority and unction and power, but brethren, He preached with such grace and such beauty. Do you remember what it said of Him? Luke chapter 4, go back to that again. Luke 4.22 And all spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words 
that were coming from his mouth. Brethren, not only did he come in power and he came in authority and he came putting the demons to flight, but brethren, he came with such grace upon, it says in, in, in Psalm 45, grace is poured upon your lips. Brethren, he came with such such beauty in his speech and such grace poured upon his lips in his speech that people are marveling at the gracious words that came from his mouth. It's the same kind of thing that we get in John chapter 1. You know, I've heard it, I've quoted it, you know, dozens and dozens of times, but John 1, 14, what's he full of, brethren? Grace and truth. This is, this is the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one that preached and was full of grace and truth. He wasn't full of grace and just had a little bit of truth, and he wasn't full of truth and just had a little bit of grace. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. It was a perfect combination of a man and a preacher. Brethren, he spoke in such a way that th this is a shocking, a shocking testimony in John chapter 7. He spoke in such a way that these people sent officers to arrest him and they come back with no Jesus in hand and nothing to say, but no one spoke like that man. That's all they have to say. Brethren, wouldn't you have loved to hear him preach? I'd give anything to hear him preach. I hope that he does preach in glory. <laughs> Every Sunday we gather and we get a sermon from Jesus. But wouldn't you have loved to hear him preach? You just take the Sermon on the Mount as an example and truly he does all things well as a preacher. Listen, he's able to comfort. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5 3. He's able to encourage. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. 5 14 through 16. He's able to speak on really theologically complex topics. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 5.17 He is able to unashamedly point people to holiness. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. 5.29 He's able to rebuke. If you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. 546. He's able to heal the weak-hearted. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, neither gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 6, 25, and 26. He's able to warn Christians of faulty living. You beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 6, 1. He's able to warn the lost. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 7, 21. He is able to encourage faith. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. 
brethren, he is able to do all things well. And that's not even all that he's able to do. And that is one sermon. You read the Sermon on the Mount, brethren, there's a word in there, no matter who you are and where you're at. He had the Spirit of God in a way to preach to every single person that was there and present. There never was a preacher like him. Never again will there be one. Brethren, as a preacher of the Word of God, I'm telling you, all that a man could ever do is say, Lord Jesus, make me in any way the smallest degree of what you were as a preacher. No one can, no one can come close to the man in his preaching. It is so hard, brethren, to, to stand and proclaim the Word and even harder to say, what is useful for God's people and no one knew the sheep better than Jesus Christ. And no one preached to them better than Jesus Christ. And no one comforted them and rebuked them and corrected them and healed them. And all of the things that need to be done in preaching, he did it perfectly, brethren. Never was there a man that preached like him. He was extraordinarily gifted and empowered by the Spirit of God to preach. And none did it better than him. <clears throat> Now, we see that he was undoubtedly powerful as a preacher. But what did he preach? What was the content of his preaching? And we might think, well, the content was all the things you just talked about, right? And, and we like to divvy stuff up into nice, sort of neat categories you know, he preached on holiness, he preached on forgiveness, he preached on prayer, he preached on repentance, he preached on self-denial, he preached on love, right? And all of that may be good and well and true. He did preach on all those things. But I want to make an argument to you that uh, Jesus in his preaching had one primary particular focus, and all of the other things sort of fit into that bag. You imagine a nice goodie bag that you get from a party, and uh, you have all kinds of different good stuff in there. And I, what I want you to see is that this, this singular point is the goodie bag, so to speak. And all the other stuff that goes in there are the things that Jesus spoke about. But they're part of that. There's a reason why he's preaching on them. Now, let me show you this particular focus, all right? Go to Mark chapter 1 again. I'm going to ask you questions about this text. So when we read it, Pay very close attention to it. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Okay, so here he is. It says he is preaching or proclaiming the gospel. Saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now I want to make this very, very clear because this is extraordinarily important for you guys to grasp. It says that Jesus came proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the gospel of God. And it says that He, pro he came proclaiming that gospel by saying something in particular. What is it that Jesus, when it says He proclaims the gospel, what does He say? That's it. He says, the time is fulfilled, 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this is extraordinarily important. We have got to realize that for Jesus Christ and His apostles, the good news, the gospel, brethren, the good news is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the good news for them. Why is this the case? Why is it that the gospel that Jesus is preaching is that the kingdom of God is at hand? Why is that the good news? Brethren, it's because that's what they were waiting for. Forever this is what they were waiting for. For thousands of years, God had made promises. I am going to send you a Messiah. I am going to establish a kingdom that will be forever. This is what they were told. This is what they're told in the prophets. Brethren, what they're looking for is a Messiah and a kingdom. That's what they're looking for, brethren. And here it is. Lo and behold, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. There is no better news for these people. Thousands and thousands of years, they are waiting for a kingdom to come. And here it is, brethren. Here it is. There could be no greater news to preach. And for Jesus Christ, the good news, the gospel, is that the time is fulfilled. God had saw fit right now. Here it is. The kingdom of God's at hand. That's the good news, brethren. For Jesus Christ, that's the good news for the apostles. But I ask you, why is that if we ask, usually we ask ourselves or we ask other Christians, why is that not the good news? Why is that not what we say when we say good news? Why is that not what we say when we say gospel? Because what do we typically think? We typically think something like forgiveness of sins, right? We typically think, you say, what's the gospel? Well, sometimes you ask someone, what's the gospel? And they immediately start with, you're dead in sins. Well, that's no gospel at all. That's no good news. The, but, but sometimes you ask them and you say, what's the gospel? And they say, oh, you have your sins forgiven. Now, I will be the first to tell you, that is good news, is it not? Amen. Anybody here feel like that's not good news? Okay. <laughs> that is good news. Undoubtedly, it's good news. It's great news. It's news we need. But brethren, that is not the kind of thing that Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is not getting at the fact that the gospel is only centered around the fact that you have forgiveness of sins. That is not what he has in mind. Now, it's part of it, but it is definitely not all of it. It's in the goodie bag, right? It's one of those things in the goodie bag. It might be your favorite thing in the goodie bag, but it is not the bag itself. Let me give you a bit of an analogy here so you might see how we often cut ourselves short when we speak of the good news. You pretend that you catch word and uh, your great-great-uncle has inherited to you his kingdom. A country you never knew existed is now all yours. Everything. It's everything you, uh, that he had, you now have. You inherited all of it. Okay? Everything. His country, everything in it. All the beautiful rivers, the countryside, the faithful people to the ruling king. And this land is a perfectly peaceful land. There's never been a war here. There never will be a war there. There's no lack. This place unlike any other, has perfect provision. The fruit trees blossom. The, the, the vine is, is blossoming. Every, I mean, just provision is always made for the people. They're always filled with joy. You also have cities all spread throughout this kingdom that are, that are 
growing and producing all kinds of goods for the world. And your craftsmanship is far above and beyond anything anywhere else in the world. You find out that other countries are always calling your newly inherited country saying, give us your resources because your resources are better than everybody else's and they last 10 times longer than everybody else's. Additionally, you're to inherit a palace where you and your family are now to reign forever. Now, you get this news and you think, well, I got to tell my friend this news. So you call your friend up on the phone and you say, friend, I got to tell you something. I have just inherited a huge 12-foot-tall all-cedar door. It's the most beautiful door you've ever seen. Front door to a palace. It's covered in gold and it's covered in jewels. It's the greatest front door you've ever seen. Now, would that be true? Yes. It is true, right? You did inherit that front door. But you know what you left out when you told him I inherited the door? That you also inherited the castle and the whole kingdom with it. Brethren, when we do this kind of thing, telling, telling someone that the gospel is that they have forgiveness of sins is like telling your friend that you inherited the front door to this beautiful castle. Now, undoubtedly, it is an important piece to, the, to this kingdom, right? You can't get into the throne room from which you rule this kingdom without going through that glorious front door. But brethren, it is just a part of this kingdom that you have inherited. This is why we can often cut ourselves very short of, of recognizing why the good news is so good. Brethren, you realize that if you are in Christ, you have inherited a kingdom. A kingdom. <laughs> You've inherited a kingdom. You reign in this thing. That's what the scriptures say. You are seated with Christ and you are reigning with Him in a kingdom. You have not only inherited a kingdom, you kind of reign as a king in a kingdom with Christ. Do you realize what you've been given in Christ? You've been given a kingdom that will never end. You look in Daniel. It's toppling over everything else. It's growing into this mountain that covers the earth. You have inherited that. You've inherited, if you imagine, you know, this is way smaller deal, but maybe you get it, right? If, if you uh, inherited the, the best baseball team that ever played and they would win the World Series forever now moving forward and it's yours. You didn't do anything to get it. This someone just gave it to you and now you'll win the World Series every single year. This is what we're talking about, brethren. You've inherited something that is so unbelievably glorious. I mean, brethren, I just, I, I don't know what else can be said about it. But this is yours. You've been given a kingdom. And don't sell it short, brethren. Don't sell it short by settling for, well, I got this nice door. And I'm, and I'm going to tell everybody else about my nice door. Well, you tell them about your door. But you tell them about everything else, too. You tell them about all the other blessings and the glories that are given to you in this kingdom that you are partakers of. Now, as I said before, we do see Christ preaching on all kinds of things, right? He preaches on holiness and forgiveness and love, self-denial, repentance. and all. He preaches on all these, different, all these different topics. But why? Why is He ultimately preaching on these things? 
Now, I'm going to argue that the, he, is, he is ultimately preaching on these things because they are results of the kingdom of God entering in. This, I want you to see that this is, still, this is still a goodie bag here, the kingdom of God. And you got all these other things in there that are, that are wonderful. They come as a result of it. Brethren, the kingdom of God has entered in, right? We see Jesus preaching on a holiness, okay? The kingdom of God has entered in, therefore, be holy. And you can be holy because you are a part of this kingdom. You see how this works? The kingdom of God is the, the, the fundamental piece. kingdom of God has entered in, therefore, you can be holy. Holiness is a reality for God's people. And this is the fundamental reality for the Sermon on the Mount. If you go and read that sermon, you find out Jesus, right at, right at the beginning, He tells them, unless your righteousness, what? Exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is He trying to get them to see? This is kingdom living, folks. This is how you be righteous in the kingdom. The king is calling you to a certain way of life in his kingdom. The whole thing is centered upon the kingdom. It's kingdom living for kingdom people. That's what he's preaching about. It's kingdom focused to the core, the Sermon on the Mount is. And all other things are tied up in this. The kingdom of God has entered in. Therefore, forgiveness of sins is offered to you if you would enter into the kingdom. The kingdom of God has entered in. Therefore, love can reign in the hearts of those who partake of its blessing. The kingdom of God has entered in. Therefore, deny yourself, sell all that you have, and you go buy that treasure in the field because it is far more worth. It has far more worth than anything else in this world can offer you. It's all centered upon the kingdom. We have got to have a mind shift if we are going to adequately preach the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ preached. We are going to have to have a mind shift to do that. The gospel that Jesus Christ came to preach was a gospel of a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a gospel of His kingdom. That's what He came to preach. And it is indeed, brethren, good news. It is good news indeed. As I said in the beginning, there are I mean, there's so many things that you could try to deal with with preaching. And honestly, when you have, when you have an overabundance, it's kind of hard because you, just, you, you don't want to go too much. And then sometimes you end up going too little. So uh, as, I, as I thought through some of this, I felt like I, I didn't want to go too broad. I wanted us to simply see, right? I wanted us to, I, I have no intention in exhausting the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ. I wanted us to catch a glimpse of it, to ignite in you a passion for the words of the Lord Jesus on the pages of Scripture, that as you read Him preaching, that it is powerful to you. These things have been inscribed for eternity, brethren, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 4 gives us a good summary of everything that we've just looked at. Matthew 4, 23, here's what He says. He, this is Jesus, He went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now that's even more clear. What is he proclaiming? The good news of what? Of the kingdom. I mean, you can't get more clear than that. But this is the indication that preaching lies powerfully at the forefront of what Jesus is doing in his ministry. His purpose was to go through all places and preach. That's what he's doing. He's a preacher, brethren. Jesus went throughout the synagogues and He preached. He went out to the open air places and He preached. 
He went on the boat and he preached. He went everywhere and he preached. He just was preaching everywhere about the kingdom of God. It goes on in verse 24 of that same chapter and it says this, And so his fame spread. Now I love that verse. Jesus went out and, and was preaching the gospel. And brethren, his fame spread. And this is true, brethren, all the way up until this day. Jesus is Christ, fame has spread. Jesus is the most famous preacher to ever live. You can go in a lot of places, brethren. They might not know who Billy Graham is or John MacArthur or anybody else. But, but Jesus Christ is a known preacher. He is the most known preacher to ever live. And I want to close with this. This is, it's not really a quote because I, I changed it quite a bit. But this is something that Philip Schaff says in his book, The Person of Christ. Let me read this to you. His preaching has claimed the hearts of Jews, although he identified with none of their sex. His preaching has made disciples among the Greeks, although he preached to them no new system of philosophy. His preaching won those among the Romans, although he fought no battles. He gained worshipers among the, among the Hindus who despise all men of low caste, among men of all colors, shapes, and sizes, among those from nations who have nothing to offer, and among those with nations who are among the most highly civilized. All his words, all his preaching, although adapted to the time in which he lived, still retain their force, applicability, and are undiminished in all ages. Brethren, truly, his fame spread to all places. You will not find another man who has had such inroads and influence upon all places and upon all people. Brethren, you can find men that, have been, that are great men in history. You can find someone like George Washington, but you, never, you know what? George Washington will not be to any other country what he is to the United States. He means nothing to most people. And Jesus Christ is not like this. You go to any place and you can find Jesus Christ is, is, is reigning. They glorify Him, brethren. He is, he is unlike any other. His fame spread... And Jesus Christ is truly a preacher who has won the hearts of all men in all places. And it is because those officers were absolutely right what they said about Jesus Christ. Brethren, there was never one who spoke like this man. He is the true Prince of Preachers. Let me pray.